by the have access so that you can take to the test. Please don't tell me after the test starts that you can't get on ULEARN and can't take the test. You can take it as many times as you want. It's multiple choice. You will not know your score at the end of each time, uh, but your highest score will count. The test will be graded on a curve, one-third A, one-third B, one-third C. Okay? No Ds, no Fs. Um, okay, today's subject is <clears throat> the role of public opinion in uh, democracies, authoritarian regimes, and especially the European Union from which the reading is drawn. The reading tries to give us an understanding of specifically why uh, after World War II, European nationalism in public opinion decreased and then reasserted itself. Okay, so the uh, phenomenon was extreme nationalism before World War I and World War II. Uh, the fear of nationalism led the founders of the European Union in 1959 to create what the reading describes as an elite-centered process for which the mass publics uh, tolerated the emergence of this supranational organization based on free trade coal and steel community and so forth with the idea that if you made it really um, profitable to stay in business and therefore expensive to go to war, the opportunity cost of war would be so great that the publics would say, no, we'd rather get rich than, than go fight. So the concept, first of all, here is opportunity cost coming from economics. Uh, this, this is the concept, you know, if I choose A, what do I lose, what do I gain, right? In the old days, war was land and territory, right? And whether it's out of greed, you want more land, you want more territory, because that's the path to wealth, or you're just defensive and say, they're likely to attack me, so the more land and the more uh, people, I should say, population, Territory and land are the same. Um, the more people and the more territory I have, the more powerful I am, and therefore, even if I don't want to grab it from everybody else, at least I can protect myself. So this led to the creation uh, of empires. First, in history, there are three forms of states. And by state, we mean Georgia the country, not Georgia the state of the United States, right? So a state is a country with territory, land, uh, government control, uh, effective military and police coercion power. The monopoly of legitimate coercion is the aspect that Max Weber emphasized. First, we have city-states as the first modern form of states. Uh, Sparta, Athens, and ancient Greece, Florence, uh, and other Italian city-states in the medieval period. Can anyone name to me two city-states in, in contemporary life? Vatican's a city-state, but, but it's a little bit different in that I don't think they have an army that can conquer and defend. They have a palace guard of sorts, but that's, that's a pretty good guess. And maybe it is a city-state, I'm not sure. 
What am I thinking of? There's several, Monaco, Singapore, Hong Kong. Hong Kong is part of China, but um, certainly Singapore is a city-state, right? Very wealthy one, fantastic economic growth. Could you put that away, please? Thank you. Um, then empires came about because an original city-state, Rome, ruled for 400 years, expanded its territory through conquest, and the losing side became slaves, usually to fight in the army. And these empires had armies that were consisted not of volunteer recruits, but people who basically were forced to do it. And they didn't do it out of love. They did it because if they didn't do it, they get killed. So the slaves would be killed. Rome, Roman slaves were just the people got defeated in the wars. White slaves for white people, as it were. Uh, and in the case of the Ottoman Empire, which was ruled out of Constantinople and what is currently Turkey, the Sultan, which was the name of their king, anyone know how his army was formed? The Janissaries were the slaves, effectively firstborn Christians conquered in Europe who were converted to Islam and became part the, the officers of the Sultan's army and the, and the troops. And you know they, they weren't loyal to uh, initially, uh, but they became loyal because they were brainwashed at a very early age kidnapped from their parents, basically, and in, in almost like Spartan fashion from ancient uh, Greece brought into the fold. And then empires, what were they, what's the modern form of, of a state? What kind of state do we have in the United States? It's in the reading. We have a, that's the type of regime where democracy is opposed to a military dictatorship. But just, just in terms of how the form of control, it's, it's typically called a nation state. The state part of it is the physical control exerted by the laws and the army and the police. Uh, and to some extent, the belief in the legitimacy of our national state. And the belief comes under this theory of our current state from the nation. What is the American nation? Is it a people? Is it like the French and the Germans and the Botswanans uh, and the South Africans? Are we, are we a unified people? What does e pluribus unum mean? It's an expression from Ovid in, in Latin for a salad dressing. No, sorry, for a salad. Mixed green salad. Anyone know what it means in English? Could you put that if you're not looking? tomatoes and whatever goes into your mixed green salad, one salad. And our national motto, e pluribus unum, one out of many, comes from a salad recipe, believe it or not. At least that's what I was told in Latin class. Um, and the, the idea is we may have come from Africa, we our ancestors, or from Europe or wherever, China, uh, but we're one nation. Now the notion of a nation 
is different from the notion of an empire or a city-state. Because in a city-state, the slaves were the armies. In an empire, it would be the serfs who worked for a feudal lord in an inherited caste status where you're tied to the land and return for protection. But the, the feudal lord will also make sure that you fight in the army when he orders you to. So you're born a serf and you die a serf. And it's that way for hundreds of years. And then the king makes a deal with the feudal lord. Um, the feudal lords provide the, the troops, and then they go out and fight as groups for the empire. But the soldiers don't love the empire, just like the soldiers in the city-states, unless they've been brainwashed, like the janissaries of the Ottoman Empire were brainwashed from, from birth. But generally, you don't fight, and you're not willing to die because of love. It's because of fear, because they're out to get you. In the nation-state, the whole idea was you love your country, the idea of patriotism, the idea of nationhood, the idea of belonging. Now, this sense of belonging may have existed throughout history, but what you belong to typically in, in, in a serf situation, working for a feudal lord, fight, fighting occasionally for the empire, or in the city-state, what was the sense of belonging for that kind of person? A thousand years ago, 200 years ago and in many traditional societies today. Does a, person, a peasant in a traditional society feel most loyal to the country and to the nation? To the family, what else? To the clan, to the church, to the same ethnic group? So um, in some sense, nation refers to the ethnic group in the modern na nation state that hasn't cr created a new nation. So when countries are formed out of colonialism, what you have is hatred of the former colonial power because they were subjugating your people. And then you've got lots of different ethnic and clan loyalties that people feel loyal to because this country's just been created out of nothing. But who you feel loyal to? People who speak the same language, have the same cultural, religious customs, people that you know very well from your community, but not that other group that speaks a different language. Maybe they speak, worship a different god. Maybe they have you know, totally no connection to you, and you're not in a modern economy, so there's no reason why you have to come across them. But if you end up in a war, particularly a civil war, which are the much more common forms of war these days, it's usually one ethnic group against a different ethnic group inside the same country. And that happens in part because the people don't feel their first loyalty to the country and sacrificing to their own country. So what modern nationalism is, is an effort to replace loyalty to your particular ethnic group and your local uh, community to the nation of the country. Now there are two ways that governments tried to do this. One was just to pick the dominant ethnic group and the dominant language and just say, OK, we're the majority. We don't trust anyone that's not part of that group. We can't convince you to join us, so we're going to force you. And in many ways, uh, forcing you was the way that was used in France and England historical, historically, to a lesser extent Germany, where by force and later by conscription and industrialization and the local schools, Everybody spoke the language that the dominant group wanted. 
And the dominant group may not be the physical majority. The dominant group might be the minority. But because they're in charge of the state, they picked that language group. And that's the language everyone's taught in school when they invented public schools to go out to the entire countryside as countries industrialized. And they needed a military where everyone spoke the same language. And businesses needed employees that all spoke the same language as well. So nationalism is defined as imagining a new community to replace the clan and ethnic group that you naturally inherited in your remote village with whatever language they happen to pick. And that language would be the official language of the country that everybody would be forced to learn. And over time, and that's decades if not centuries of time, you slowly but steadily wipe out the other languages. Because the kids learn the, the official language in school. And when they grow up, they know the official language a lot better than they know their own language. And so they speak the language they speak better. And the old language just dies out. In the United States, how many people from other countries have come to this country? At home, they speak the foreign language. But the kids don't learn how to write it, because parents don't teach them how to write it. They may learn later, but most of them don't. And then they learn English in school, and they learn how to write it. And so they speak English as well, or even better than their natural language. But they, they write English. And they meet somebody else who may not speak the language you spoke at home. Or maybe they do speak the language at home. If you do, then you may well teach the next generation the language that you both learned in your home. But if you, have, you meet an American who only knows English, or if you meet some other immigrant who only speaks a different language, then English is the common language. And then that language dies out in the United States, in effect, in that one family. And we call that assimilation. And that forced assimilation happened in England and France, because England and France had lots of dialects. You know, The official language of the English court for a long time was French. And that's where we get the majority of our English language words from Latin, actually, is from French, of the, from the French invasion uh, in 1066. Later, we got German words when the Angles and the Saxons invaded from Germany. Uh, and then French got, of the court got mixed in with German to create English. And that mixture of the two language invented the language English sometime in the last six or 700 years. English, which is the richest vocabulary language in the world, got the most words, is actually a relatively young language. Uh, and it was basically invented. And then people in England were gradually forced, beginning in the 1640s, after the Peace of Westphalia, if not before, to learn English if you're going to be educated. And when there was need for mass education, as the country became industrialized and as England started fighting wars on the continent, particularly World War I and World War II, it was imperative that everyone spoke English. And that's when they introduced mass education. So states create nations, theoretically one nation per country. But in most countries of the world, you don't get the complete success, which by the way has some very downsides, but the complete success of an England or a France where they basically wiped out the mainstream use of other languages. There's a little bit of Celtic spoken in Scotland, uh, I believe. There's more Celtics in the western part of Ireland, which was a colony of England, which became independent formally, informally after World War I and formally after World War II. 
Um, but basically, and there's a little bit of Welsh spoken Wales, but basically there's English is the language of England. France has a few more languages. Uh, in Brittany, they speak Britannia or whatever the how you pronounce that language. There's some Mediterranean dialects in the south near Marseille. And Corsica is a different island that's sort of a colony, and they speak Corsican there. But basically, French and French. There are more dialects in Germany. Germany is a younger country. Germany came into being in 1870, as opposed to France, which had been around for four or 500 years, and England, which had been around more or less for 1,000 years. So it takes many centuries to wipe out all these languages. After three major wars, and yes? Oh, um, I'm 